Alrighty, guys. Good afternoon. Okay, if we settle down, we can start, and we're going to talk about some fun stuff today. Graveyard shift. We're almost there. Day's almost over. Just got a couple more interesting things to go through. My name is Myra Duplessy. You can find me in the main anatomy building. I have office hours that you can come and see me. If you see me walking in the corridors, grab me and say I have a question. That's perfectly fine by me. During the lecture today and the other sessions that you'll see me, please stop me if you have a question. Don't let me continue. If you're lost, stop me. Say, I have a question. Can you answer it? And then we continue from there. I do have clicker questions as well, so keep those clickers ready. They're going to pop up every now and then. All right. So, of course, the first couple slides you all have. We're just going to go through. We have our... Um, assigned readings up there and all of your objectives you can go through and I like to start with something a little more fun so we have here our clinical case a 43 year old woman visiting her physician and she's complaining of pain and stiffness in her mid to lower back and it's been going on for about three weeks she complains that now it's also gone to her neck and earlier this morning, she noticed that the pain has intensified and can also now be found between her shoulder blades. Now, depending on which system we're doing, it can mean a lot of things. And I've given you a list there. Pick one, see what you think, keep it to yourself. And then we're going to talk through the lecture and we can keep coming back to our patient to see which parts of the anatomy that we're talking about actually relates to her. And of course, we have to start with a little question. All right, let's see what you did. Ooh. So, you had your lecture on autonomics with Dr. Rabin already. So this is a little bit of cumulative things. Pain from the body wall. Are we going to deal with afferent fibers or efferent fibers? Afferent fibers, good. Where are they going? They're going to the brain, good. Body wall means somatic. So the answer is somatic afferents. Well done. All right. 
So we're in the MSK module, so we're going to talk a lot about bones and muscles and nerves and arteries. I like to build a story, I like to build the little puzzle. So we're going to start today talking about the thoracic wall, and then we're going to build the muscles, we're going to add the nerves, and then we're going to talk about other things, things that relate to the body wall but don't really fit into any of the other categories. Now the first structure we're going to talk about is the sternum. Most of you are familiar with the term breastbone. And I'm going to make you touch the superiormost portion, so don't press too hard, please. Just gently press in the middle of your upper thorax, just below your neck, you're going to press on a little indentation, and that there is the jugular notch. It's also known as the sternal notch. It's a very good landmark. Now, if you follow your fingers or trace the bone towards the lateral aspect, you'll be palpating which bone? Clavicle, yes. So we know that the clavicle is going to articulate with the upper portion of the sternum. Now to make things a little easier, the sternum is divided into three portions. The manubrium, which is a large, almost triangular structure with a cut-off apex. We have the body, which is a nice flat structure. And then the xiphoid process, which is a small triangular bone that you can, if you want to, palpate just where the rib cage kind of comes together in the midline. Now, the jugular notch is a an important landmark, and that's why we point it out. So if you take the same spot from the jugular foramen, or, oh, sorry, jugular notch, all the way down, you'll feel at some point that the bone starts dipping back. Now, this may vary from individual to individual, but that point there is also an important landmark, and that is known as the sternal angle. And that is the point where the manubrium and the sternum comes together. And we use this landmark for a lot of things. Just do this quickly. Yes. So we, lose, we use this landmark for a lot of things. And one of the things that we use this landmark for is to demarcate what is known as the transthoracic plane. So if I were to stick a needle or a knife in through the sternal angle, it would reach the disc, the intervertebral disc, between the T4 and T5 vertebrae posteriorly. Now we're going to keep coming back to this transthoracic plane. We're going to do it in MSK. You're going to do it in CPR. We're going to keep coming back to it because it's a very important plane. You can also see along the sides here, we've quickly talked about the articular site for the clavicle. Just below that, we have the attachment for the first rib. Now, if you try to palpate your first rib, you'll realize that you can't do it because it's hidden. It's hidden behind a lot of muscle. It's also hidden behind the clavicle. So when we try to count the ribs, we always start with number two. And that attaches at the junction between the manubrium and the sternum, right there. Again, an important landmark. So we also have the remaining rib facets. We have from ribs three all the way down to six, and then seven attaching to the junction between the body and the xiphoid. Now when we talk about the ribs, there's, number of there's a number of ways in which we can classify them. And one of these ways is by whether they have typical features or whether they have atypical features. Now the typical features of a rib is that they have a head, and the head has two demi-facets on it. And these facets will articulate with the bodies of the thoracic vertebra next to which it lies. It also has a tubercle. Now you can see here the tubercle. This is a posterior view. You can see the tubercle. And that also has an articular facet. We'll talk about the joints that's formed by that in a little bit. Now if you think about your ribs, right? They angle forward. They curve. Because they curve, they need to have an angle, and the angle is really the point at which the rib changes direction. When you're in the lab, specifically when you're doing your bone stations, pay attention to how the ribs arch when they move from posterior to anterior. We're going to talk about how to identify them on x-rays later, and that'll help you understand the x-rays, but it'll also help you understand other things, such as dermatomes and innervations that we're going to talk about. 
On the inferior border of the rib, we have what is known as the costal groove. And in this groove, I find my neurovascular bundle. Very important, very clinically relevant, because any procedure that I'm trying to do between my ribs, I need to be careful of which location I'm going in because the neurovascular bundle needs to stay protected. Also have the anterior aspect that's known as the sternal angle, even though it doesn't attach to the sternum directly. It has a costal cartilage attached to it. And the costal cartilage then continues to attach to the sternum itself. And that's what is described as a typical rib. Now, atypical ribs are atypical because they have one or, or more of these features that are either missing or that are different. And I've listed the atypical ribs for you here. Some of them are like the rib one has a lot of reasons as to why it is atypical, but the reasons for rib one to be atypical and the reasons for rib two, those are all going to be individual. They're, going, they're not going to correspond all the time. So each of them will have their own reason. What is nice, though, is that the vertebrae will also correspond. So my atypical ribs and my atypical vertebrae will share similar numbers. That makes it easier. Talking about the thoracic vertebra, if you hold it in your hand, it tends to feel a little small. The body is small. It's heart-shaped. You can easily identify it don't really see the heart shape so nicely on the picture, but when you hold it, you'll get that idea. We have the articular facets. So we have the facets, one superior, one inferior. And these are the demi-facets specifically for the ribs. And then we also have the articular facets for the corresponding or adjacent vertebra as well. And these will change shape and direction depending on where I am um, in the vertebral column as Dr. Rao has gone through with you. What is interesting though is that the spinous process of this thoracic vertebra will slope downward. It slopes in an inferior direction. And if you think about the actions that you can do at the thoracic um, vertebral level, you know why that is. Just to make things a little easier, when we're talking about vertebral levels, or we're talking about nerve levels, we tend to just use the abbreviation T to indicate we're talking about thoracic, and then whichever number we're talking about. You'll hear us talk about and refer to the vertebrae in this way a lot. So get used to the terminology. Now we're going to talk about the joints. Now these joints are very interesting because of the amount of movement they need to allow. So they're always going to be synovial joints. Synovial joints have a number of characteristics. If you look here, this is between the head of the rib and the vertebra, and each rib will articulate with its own vertebra as well as the vertebra above. The transverse process, and you can't see it and here, unfortunately, we have it on the next slide, the transverse process will articulate only with its own corresponding number vertebra. Sternocostal, these are the ones on the anterior aspect. Except for the first rib, they are all synovial joints as well. Now, if you don't believe me, all you have to do is place your hand on your chest, wherever you feel comfortable, and take a deep breath. What happens? The sternum moves forward. All of these joints act at the same time when you take a deep breath. And we're going to talk about these actions and how we describe them as well. And we also have, when it comes to attachment to the sternum, another classification. And this is whether this, the rib is a true rib, meaning it is attached to the sternum directly by its own costal cartilage, whether it's a false rib, meaning it attaches to somebody else, or whether it's a floating rib, meaning that it doesn't attach anteriorly at all. And here we have a different look at the joints. There you can see the rib articulating posteriorly, and then also anteriorly. And I've given you here the numbers of the ribs in terms of whether they're false, true, or floating. And if you're lucky, you can actually feel your 12th rib. Don't press too hard, because it does hurt. But you can actually feel your 12th rib and the fact that it doesn't articulate with the sternum at all. Now, when we put all of these structures together, we have what is known as a thoracic cage. 
right? It's a nice round structure. It does actually look like a cage. If you think in terms of a bird cage, it does have a similar appearance. And all cages have to have openings. And so we have a superior thoracic aperture and an inferior thoracic aperture. Now, the superior thoracic aperture is the one up here. One of its landmarks is the jugular, uh, for, uh, sorry, jugular notch, while the inferior is going to be where the diaphragm is. When you're looking at the image like this, you need to use a little bit of imagination right now because we don't do the organs yet. But the thoracic cage itself that holds the thoracic cavity and the thoracic organs is only extending to approximately the fifth intercostal space, not below that. So a large amount of this, and we'll talk about this in the upcoming lectures, extends towards the abdominal cavity. And you'll see this in the lab as well. So the inferior thoracic, cavity, uh, thoracic aperture, this has posteriorly the 12th thoracic vertebra, and then extending from that, the 12th rib as well as the 11th rib, the costal margin, and the xiphoid process, and this space is sealed off by the diaphragm. The diaphragm has some openings for the major structures that needs to pass through to actually pass through between the two cavities. Now, the superior thoracic aperture, and this is best viewed from a lateral view, sort of a, not a midline view, but um, a lateral view. There you can see the clavicle. There's the first rib. And the superior thoracic aperture lies between the first vertebra, the first rib, both posteriorly and laterally, and the clavicle and jugular notch anteriorly. And what this space is, is it allows for structures to move from the thoracic region and from the neck region between each other, and then also from the thoracic region through the neck into the axilla, and finally the rest of the upper limb. So naturally, if we have a nice little small space like this, we have the potential for things to go wrong, correct? Yes. And sometimes, actually quite more often than you would think, we have an extra rib. And if the extra rib is along the neck region, along the cervical region, it will impact on the size of that space. Now, the extra rib is not going to make more or less structures pass through it. It's just going to make the space more cramped. Now, there's variations of the cervical rib, and you'll encounter it again in the next module. But what it does is creates the space between the muscles and the bone, makes them smaller, or just puts extra tension on the brachial plexus, as you can see here. So these are two different examples of what this extra rib can do. And this is known as thoracic outlet syndrome. Thoracic outlet syndrome typically presents with an individual coming to the physician, to the doctor, saying that their hand has been numb for a while. And now they also have pain in their upper limb. Usually, all of those symptoms start within the distalmost portion of the extremity, which is the hand. It can also be accompanied by paleness, swelling, because I have compression of the artery. Very common, um, or more common than you would think, it can also be caused by other things, such as tension on the muscles themselves, or an increase in connective tissue around the area, but most commonly caused by a cervical rib. Now, we've talked about the cage, but when you're breathing and you're walking around, you don't see your lungs piercing through or bulging through the intercostal spaces, do you? No, they're closed off by muscles. And these muscles are arranged in three layers. Externally to internally, they're named exactly as to where they are. The external intercostal muscles are the outer ones, the internal intercostal muscles are going to be just a little deeper. And then you also have what is known as the innermost intercostal muscles. Now, the innermost intercostal muscles are not throughout the intercostal space. They're only located in 
around the lateral aspects of the thoracic cavity. They're not found throughout. Even the external and internal intercostal muscles don't travel in the entire space, but they alternate. So the external intercostal muscle, you'll see this in the lab, starts from the, the sternum as a membrane and then goes around as a muscle, while the internal intercostal does the exact opposite. It has its membranous portion close to the vertebrae. Now what is important to know is the fiber directions. So the external intercostals is best described as having your hands in your front pockets. I'll walk around that side in a minute. Front pockets, so down like this. Why? Because when they contract, what do they do? They pull on the rib below. Take a deep breath again. What happens? Your cage moves forward. Those are the external intercostal muscles pulling on the ribs below, making sure that the spaces become smaller. Now when I'm exhaling, what happens? They have to go back. So the internal intercostal muscle does the exact opposite. And the internal intercostal, if this is the external intercostal muscle, the internal intercostal muscle runs like this. So they crisscross. And when we come to the anterior abdominal wall, you'll see the abdominal muscles do the exact same thing. Now the internal intercostal and the innermost intercostal muscles run in the same direction. What do you think in terms of their action? Are they going to be the same or different? Same. What is important to know, though, is that the neurovascular bundle lies between the internal and the innermost muscles. And when you see it in the lab, you'll be able to identify them there. How do we innervate these intercostal muscles? We innervate them segmentally. So as the nerves come out, you've learned about ventral and dorsal rami. Now the ventral rami of the spinal nerves will travel through the intercostal space as the intercostal nerve and innervate everything within that space. Now the nice thing is, is it's also going to give me a branch to the skin. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We also have some muscles on the deeper aspect of the thorax. These are variable. The transversus thoracic muscle is easily identified. And if I were to take the anterior portion of the thorax, cut it open, lift it up and look at it from the inside, this is what you'll see. There's the sternum, the clavicle is there, and there's the first rib. So the transversus thoracic muscle radiates out from the sternum. And contrary to what its name indicates, it's not running transversely. It's radiating out. Same nerve supply um, applies. Now if we look at the posterior aspect of the thoracic cage, and these you may not be able to appreciate in the lab because of their position, the subcostal muscles run posteriorly. There you can see the vertebra. And they typically travel across more than one intercostal space. So they travel longitudinally from a superior inferior direction, crossing more than one space. And again, we have the same innervation. Now, most of these muscles you've already encountered. But we've talked about the intercostal muscles. We've talked about what they do briefly. These muscles that you see here also help with respiration, and that's why we talk about them here. Thoracic cage movement helps with respiration. All of these muscles play a role. So pectoralis major moves the upper limb, correct? And we have the actions here, shoulder adduction, flexion, and then medial rotation of the humerus. You've encountered these already. Serratus anterior, that is the lateral muscle of the thorax, and if you remember that it travels around from the medial border of the scapula all the way down and has nice little finger projections on the lateral aspect. So I have a lot more anterior muscles than I have lateral muscles. Also to remember is if you lift up the pectoralis major muscle, there's a thick layer of fascia separating pec major from pec minor. This is known as the clavipectoral fascia. 
you've encountered an extension of this already. And when we're talking about the different layers of the axilla, as well as the structures on the thorax, this name will pop up quite a bit. It's quite a strong fascial layer. So, question time. Alrighty, so we have here the same individual telling you that she had some symptoms before she came in and that these symptoms that she ex experienced with what she presented is actually a consequence of something else. And that ha happens quite a bit. And you sometimes have to ask a bunch of questions to the patient to make sure they give you all the information that you need. So what is the diagnosis is costochondritis. So let's for a moment say we had no idea where we are. Costochondritis, what is it indicating? Something to do with ribs, costo, and something to do with cartilage. And where, where is the place along the rib cage where the ribs and the cartilage are associated with each other? At the sternal aspect. So if you said D or E, you have the right thought process. Why do I say that? Now the answer is E. Why is the answer E and not D? Because the joint is located at E. That is why. Synovial joint, inflammation, that is where the problem is going to be. Okay, so this was a bit of a tricky question. But it brings us back to that, where is the joint, what is the structure looks like, and what would be the outcome if there's pain. All right. So I've alluded to this a little bit as we were talking through the muscles. We need to talk about the changes in shape and the changes in volume of the thoracic cage. And this is produced by the rib movement produced when the muscles contract. So we have two movements we're talking about. We're going to talk about what is known as the pump handle. And the pump handle, if you think about the sternum, I've been making you do this all afternoon. The sternum, when I breathe in, the sternum moves anteriorly, lifting the thoracic cage with it, changing the anterior-posterior dimensions of the thorax. And this is mostly done by my intercostal muscles when I breathe in. At the same time, the ribs need to move laterally. And again, I have intercostal muscles playing a role there, and that is lifting the ribs in a lateral position, flaring them upward, and that increases the lateral dimension. So the easiest way to remember these is really just to put your hand on your chest and breathe. Breathe in deeply, focusing on the movements. Now, the vertical dimension here also needs to change, and that is done by the contraction of or relaxation of the diaphragm. We've talked about bones, we've talked about muscles, but there's another structure that's located along the thoracic wall that forms a part of it that we need to talk about, and that is the pleura. Now, if you think about the pleura, think about a membrane. 
The pleura are membranes that line the thoracic cavity and also line the lungs. It's divided into two portions, parietal portion, and that's the portion that's going to line the thoracic cage, and it has a visceral portion which lines the lung themselves. Now, we're not going to worry about the visceral portion today. We're going to talk about that later. Our interest lies in the parietal region. Now, it's named based on where it is, and when you go into the lab, you'll actually be able to see the parietal pleura because it's a nice, firm structure. If it attaches to the ribs, or if it lies right, right next to the ribs, it's going to be called the costal. If it lies along the midline, it's known as the mediastinal, and that's this re region over here, midline here. And if it lines the area where the diaphragm is, which is inferior, it's known as the diaphragmatic. And their innervation and blood supply correspond to the structures they lie around. So the costal pleura is supplied by intercostal nerves. The mediastinal pleura and the middle portion, the central portion of the diaphragmatic pleura, supplied by what is known as the phrenic nerve. The lateral portions of the diaphragm, we'll talk about the diaphragm in more detail in a different lecture, but the diaphragm attaches to the ribs as well. And where it attaches to the ribs, the pleura will fold over the diaphragm and onto the thoracic wall. And at that portion, the diaphragm is supplied by intercostal nerves. I also have a cervical portion, which is way up here. You won't see it during the lab in this module. You'll see it in a later module when we do the neck. You'll be able to appreciate it there. Now, because the pleura aligns the thoracic cavity, the walls, including the diaphragm, it creates two spaces, one for each lung. And these two spaces don't communicate with each other. Within those spaces, because it folds from one portion onto another in a cavity, it's going to create extra spaces. And these spaces are known as the recesses. The recesses are named based on where they are. So I have one between the, the diaphragm and the ribs, and that's the costodiaphragmatic. And I have one between the mediastinal structures and the lungs, and that's the costo diaphragmatic. Costo diaphragm sorry, costo mediastinal. Costo mediastinal is in the in along the midline, and costo diaphragmatic towards the inferior aspect. Now because the pleura line the thoracic cavity, I can use bony landmarks and planes in order to identify where these are. Now if I use the planes, I'm going to talk about just the parietal pleura for a moment, it lines the thoracic cavity. So I can use these planes. In the midclavicular line, now these planes are going to come back over and over. Midclavicular line, literally midpoint of the clavicle, traveling all the way down. In an anterior aspect here, the parietal pleura, the inferior most portion of the parietal pleura, will extend down to the eighth rib, right there. Then if I move in a mid-axillary line towards the lateral aspect, think of it. The, the, the ribs are angling downwards. The pleura at this point is also angling downwards because it's following the diaphragm. So in the mid-axillary line, it's going to be found at the 10th rib. Then it travels in a more horizontal aspect because of the, the attachment of the diaphragm posteriorly, and it's going to lie adjacent to the 12th thoracic vertebra. Now, if you know that, you're more than halfway there, because the visceral pleura is two levels above. And why does this happen? To allow the lung to expand for, breathe, for, for breathing purposes. It creates a nice recess and it also allows us to extract fluid in case our patient comes in with an inflammation in the space. We can safely take out fluid without damaging the lung itself. Now this is just to show you on an x-ray and a CT scan where those recesses would be. There's the diaphragm there, the rib cage coming down, and that there's the costodiaphragmatic. 
Well, here we have the costomediastinal at the anterior aspect. Now we've talked about a lot of things, right? We always have to talk about innervation and blood supply. But before we talk about the innervation and the blood supply, I want to talk about the structures that actually form the thoracic wall, if you think about it. So externally we have the skin, and then we have our superficial fascia before we get to the muscles, finally the bones and our intercostal muscles, and then we have a thin layer of what is known as the endothoracic fascia, and this will become very important when we put um, anesthetic fluid in the space or when we do an intercostal drain, which is what we'll talk about tomorrow. The parietal pleura here also lines the cavity. Now the innervation for all of these structures surrounded a particular intercostal space, so this is one intercostal space, will be supplied by the same nerve. The intercostal nerve corresponding to that, that spot, that space. The same applies to the blood supply. We're gonna, I'm going to show you a nice picture of the blood supply in a minute. Why do we talk so much about these structures? Because if, if I have a problem with the lungs or if I have air in my pleural cavity, I need to be able to extract it safely. How do I do that? By either placing an intercostal drain, pushing a tube in there, and I need to make sure that I miss my neurovascular bundle and that I also go deep enough so that I pierce the parietal pleura. Otherwise, I won't be able to help the patient. The rachocentesis, this is when we do just extraction of a bit of fluid, maybe a lot of fluid. Sometimes um, there's a lot of fluid to extract, but usually we do a thoracocentesis just with a needle, and we extract a small amount of fluid to see what the patient's condition is, what it is that's making them um, have their symptoms. And also, if you, talk, if you look at the intercostal space here, so this is a snippet out of this section here. As the intercostal nerve travels through, it sends off a cutaneous branch laterally, and then also when it reaches the sternum, will send off a cutaneous branch, and those will supply the skin. And when we talk about dermatomes, those are the nerves that are responsible for the innervation of that particular dermatome. So, you've learned about dermatomes a little bit. You've talked about the cutaneous innervation of the upper limbs. Now we're going to talk about how that corresponds to the innervation of the thorax. Now, if you look at the picture over here, you'll see that the lines are nicely horizontal. You have to keep in mind that posteriorly, they arch downward. Again, when you get into the lab, look at the skeleton. It'll give you a nice indication of where the dermatomes are. So what is a dermatome? It is a piece of skin supplied by a single spinal nerve. And why is it important for us? Because there are certain conditions that will either refer to a particular dermatome or will affect a particular dermatome, and that helps us locate where the problem is. And there are some levels that we want you to pay attention to, and these are going to come back over and over as we go through the modules, as we go through the two terms, and then further on. So T4 corresponds to the level of the nipple, and when we talk about the breast, I'm actually going to show you the T4 nerve. The xiphoid process is going to be T7, the umbilicus, T10, and the suprapubic region here will be T12. When we talk about the abdomen, we're going to add a, a last one, and that will be the L1 region. Now let's talk about blood supply. I've alluded to this a little bit. Half the slide, and we've talked about the wall being supplied by arteries. And these arteries are called intercostal arteries, but they have several sources. So we're going to start off with the big one, and that is the descending aorta, also known as the thoracic aorta or the descending thoracic aorta. And this is going to supply arteries that will run posteriorly in the intercostal space. We also have the subclavian artery, which will give us this nice long vessel that runs on either side of the sternum, and that this here is the internal thoracic artery. And the internal thoracic artery will give us, oh, 
skip this one. The internal thoracic artery will give us our anterior intercostal vessels. And they will anastomose with the posterior, as you can see on this section here, somewhere along that intercostal space. And that gives us a nice alternative blood flow. The first two intercost posterior intercostal arteries come off the subclavian via the costocervical trunk. And they don't anastomose necessarily with the anterior. They can, but sometimes they don't. So there we have the internal thoracic coming down. We have our anterior intercostal arteries. Now the internal thoracic artery is going to continue down and split into two. One of them is going to run between the ribs and the diaphragm, and that's known as the musculophrenic. So anytime you hear the word phrenic, think of diaphragm or breathing. Okay. Musculophrenic, it runs along the muscle of breathing, muscle, which is the diaphragm. And of course, it's going to supply the diaphragm at that portion, as well as the portions of the anterior intercostal space. Continuation of the internal thoracic is the superior epigastric. Now, I want you to circle that artery because we're going to keep coming back to it. A superior epigastric artery is going to continue all the way down along the abdomen and will go and anastomose with its counterpart coming from the iliac vessels. Venous drainage. Usually the venous drainage follows the uh, arterial supply. In this case, we have the naming slightly differently. We have the inferior vena cava, which starts off in the abdominal cavity here. We have a superior epigastric vein, which will join with the musculophrenic vein to form the internal thoracic. We also have anterior intercostal veins. We have a superior intercostal vein. Now, the superior intercostal veins may or may not drain into the azygous. The upper two um, intercostal spaces has a variation in draining. They may either, either drain directly into the brachiocephalic trunk or drain into the azygous. And this here is the azygous system of veins. The hemiazygous here on the left side, accessory hemiazygous on the upper left, and posterior intercostal vessels draining into the azygous. Now, the azygous vein is the continuation up into the thorax, receiving all of the venous drainage from the posterior intercostal space via the posterior intercostal um, veins. And the, the, the lymphatic drainage is going to follow these structures, at least to some extent. The azygous vein you'll be able to identify very easily. It's also a very good landmark to use in the lab. Now, looking here at the lymphatic drainage, I want to bring your attention down here to a structure that's located in the abdomen, and that is the cisterna chile. Cisterna chile is a collection, cistern meaning a collection of fluid or a location for a collection of fluid, and that is going to give rise to something known as the thoracic duct. Thoracic duct is going to travel up. We have a next slide on that as well. You can see here that each of the individual intercostal spaces drain to the posterior intercostal nodes or the intercostal nodes. Anteriorly, because they lie on either side of the sternum, they're known as the parasternal nodes. Now, the parasternal nodes are clinically important for conditions affecting the anterior thoracic wall, specifically when it comes to breast cancer, and we'll talk about that as well. These intercostal vessels and nodes, they will join eventually into either the right bronchomediastinal trunk, or they will join directly to the thoracic duct. Yes. Cisterna Kylie. I think it's labeled on the next slide. Thoracic duct may receive contributions directly from these intercostal nodes or just travel up by itself. And you'll see the thoracic duct in the lab very nicely. 
So that there's the sister Nakali, there's the name. Starting off in the abdominal region, giving rise to our thoracic duct. Now, the thoracic duct, as it travels up through the thoracic cavity, will initially lie on the right side and then travel between the azygous vein and the aorta, all the way up and at our transthoracic plane, which is right there, it's going to cross to the right-hand side. Now, when you go into your next module, you'll learn about why this is very, very important to know when you're doing any kind of procedure within the thoracic cage. Now, the thoracic duct receives all of the lymph from the lower body up to the diaphragm, as well as everything from the left side of the thorax, upper limb, and head and neck region. This half of the thorax on the right and the right arm as well as the right head and neck region will drain into a right lymphatic duct. There's only a very small portion that goes into something other than the thoracic duct itself. So the thoracic duct, even though it's very small, very, very uh, fragile, receives all of the lymph from the lower body as well as most of that from the upper body. And it's going to join with the venous system because ultimately we want the waste products to be completely excreted and that happens at the junction between the subclavian and the internal jugular vein on both sides. So either thoracic duct on the left and the right lymphatic duct on the right. And if you think about where the, the veins are going, it's an easy way to remember the drainage. Right. So now we're going to talk about another structure of the thoracic wall, which is important clinically because of the structures that surrounds it, where it is located, and also how the pain fibers and the vasculature, tra vasculature travel to and from it. And that is the mammary gland or the breast. Now, they are modified sweat glands and they overlie the pectoralis major muscle. You see there, there's pec major there, and there's pec major there as well. There's subclavius, a little big on this slide, but there it is, and the clavicle there labeled for you in C. Now, there's a lot of connective tissue septa, and you can see them here, and this divides the breast into different um, segments, different compartments, and at certain locations, these um, connective tissue strands will thicken, and those are known as the suspensory ligaments. And they do exactly that. They suspend the breast, or the breast tissue. And they're mostly found, the most condensed ones will be found along the upper regions. Now, these compartments are filled with alveolar glands. And these alveolar glands ranges um, in size depending on whether the woman is lactating, whether she's pregnant, or for that matter, which part of her cycle she's in, but typically increases during pregnancy and lactation. And there's a number of hormonal changes that can affect it. We're not going to talk about that too much. Now, coming from these glands, we have a number of ducts. If you look here, you can't really see the ducts very nicely here. You can see them there. We have lactiferous ducts moving, and they're going from the gland all the way to the area of the nipple. And at the end of each of these little lactiferous ducts, we have a little bulbous extension, and that is known as the lactiferous sinus. And these ducts will open into the nipple area, and the nipple is, around, is surrounded by a structure known as the areola. There's a number of glands in this area to make sure that the skin does not dry out, and so on and so forth. Now, around the secretory lobules, the glands for that matter, every additional space is filled with fat. And the fat does not, it continues with the subcutaneous tissue of the thoracic wall, but overlying the pec region, it becomes a little thinner, it thins out just a little bit. And that brings us to something known as the retromammary space. 
So I have a layer of fascia, which is my epimesium covering the pec major, and then I have a layer of fascia that covers the posterior aspect of the breast, allowing it to move freely over the chest. This area is important because if there's any sort of growth within the breast and it uh, impacts or invades into this area, the movement will be affected. I also have a structure known as the axillary tail, and that is when the breast tissue extends up into the axilla. And we'll talk about why that happens. Axillary tail goes into the um, axilla, and you need to be aware of the tail, even though it's not present in everybody, for the major fact that it can be subject to breast cancer formation even if the rest of the breast is completely clear. Here we have the T4 cutaneous nerve going to the nipple area, very important dermatome in terms of referred pain, um, as well as um, a number of other things. Keep in mind that it doesn't matter where the nipple is actually located. What matters is that it's always the T4 nerve. And then clinically, we can divide the breast into quadrants. And these quadrants are used usually to think about the lymphatic drainage of the breast. And each of the quadrants will have a main lymphatic group that it will drain to. Okay, one more slide. We talked about the axillary tail. And the reason why the axillary tail occurs is because during embryonic development, we have two thickenings of ectodermal tissue running along from the axilla all the way down into the inguinal region. Now, in most mammals, there will be breast tissue or nipples forming along this entire ridge. In humans, only two areas will develop. And since it extends from the axillary region, we tend to have a bit of an axillary tail remnant. But you can also have accessory nipples or accessory breasts develop along these lines as well. I'm going to cut off there and we'll continue with the last few slides tomorrow because tomorrow's lecture is very short. All right, enjoy your afternoon. <laughs>